Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Chris continues in our sermon series called Know and Be Known, which is a study in 1 John. In this series, we take a look at important questions such as, how do I know that I know God? How do I know God loves me? How do I know I am saved? How can I be assured and have certainty when I have these questions? Let's get started. Well, it's been an interesting week or two uh, when it comes to the news, hasn't it? A, a lot's happening right now, and, and as a result of this virus, it's, it, you know, it's front and center in our lives it's because of the 24-7 news media attention. And I imagine this idea of assurance and certainty is, re- is, is extremely relevant in our lives right now. I mean, we want to know, right? We, we just, we want to know. How can it be certain? You know, what's going to happen? How can, I, how can I be certain that I'm okay? How can I know whether or not this is going to affect me? How can I know if, if I'm going to get sick or my kids are going to get sick? I, I want to know, what am I going to be able to do about, you know, spring break now? And, and what am I going to do about the, you know, for those of you going on the mission trip and we have school graduations and I need to know, I need some assurance. We want those assurances and certainty right now. Well, in a similar fashion, the Apostle John writes this incredible letter in first, that we call 1 John. It's all about assurance. It's all about certainty. It's all about knowing. He's helping us answer the biggest questions of life. Like, how can we know that we know God? How can we know this? How can we know for certain? How can we be assured that God loves us? And the question we asked last week, how can we know, how can we be assured that we're saved? Because God loves us, he writes something to us in this letter and he says this, because these are struggles I've had and maybe you've had the same struggles. Even as a believer, for those of you who have a faith in Christ, that you wonder these questions. And so John writes to us, 1 John chapter 5, and he says, I write these things to you who believe. So he's talking to those who already believe. He says, I write these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what's the word? Let's say it together. That you may, yes, that you may know that you have eternal life. God loves us and he wants us to have the assurance. He wants us to be certain, to know that we're saved. And how is it that you and I can know that we're saved? Is it because you prayed a prayer? Is it because you were baptized? Well, the Bible lets us know that that's not all of what's involved. That that can be part of that journey or part of that process. But as we said last week, how do you know? How do you have that assurance that you're saved? It's because you have chosen, I have chosen to place all of our hope, all of our trust, and all of our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's how we can know for certain if we've taken that step. And if we've taken that step, if we've placed our hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ, then God says, you get an incredible gift. And that's the gift of my spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And you get the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of you, which means once the spirit comes into you, you have a new nature. The Bible says this way, it says, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And with this new nature, one of the ways that we can know that we can be assured that we're saved with this new nature, it means that we want to be right with God. And there's times when we know we're not right with God. And so with that new nature, we want to get right with God. The Bible uses terms like it talks about repenting of our sins. 
It's this constant coming before God over and over and over as we sung that we surrender now. Surrender now. It's this continual surrendering of our lives to God. And that's how we can know. If that's our posture, if that's your posture, that's how we can know. We can have certainty that we're saved. Today, John answers another question. And it's quite, the question is this, how can you and I know that our experience with God is genuine? Maybe you've wondered that before. How can I know? How can I know that what's going on in my life, that what, what, what these experiences are, that they're genuine and they're, they're real experiences with God? And John's going to answer that question in about, you know, three, four, five different ways. And the thing about John, he's very different than the apostle uh, uh, Paul. Paul would have answered that question in a very logical and order ma- orderly manner. He'd say, okay, here's how you know. Step one, step two, step three, step four. That's not how John operates. John says, all right, I'm going to give you a little bit of point one, and then I want to jump ahead to point three, and oh yeah, I remember this, point two, and all right, let me go back and clarify point three again, and then go to point five. John's kind of all over the map when he's sharing this with us, which makes it extremely difficult to teach First John. I mean, it, it, just, it just does. But we're talking today about gaining certainty, gaining assurance about Jesus through our experiences with him. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Let's look at 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Turn in your Bibles or go on your phones. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And I want you to notice what John says. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And so now we testify and we proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. See, John's saying something to us. He's saying, listen, we didn't believe all of this. We didn't, we didn't believe all of this because we thought Christianity is just, you know, a superior way to live. We didn't believe all of this because it made, you know, even the most sense to, to us. We believe because we saw the miracles. We believe because we saw Jesus dead, and then we saw him alive after he was dead. And we heard him, and we touched the resurrected body. You see, the apostles never tried to draw their authority from Jesus being a wise teacher. They draw their authority from the fact of his miraculous power, which was proved with his power over death. That was their proof. For example, in John's gospel, John tells a story about a man who had been blind from birth. Jesus goes and heals this man. Later on, this man who had been blind from birth that Jesus healed, he runs into the religious leaders. The religious leaders, if you've read through scriptures, we talk about it a lot here, they really had a beef against Jesus. And so they go to this man, and he's like, Jesus healed me. And they're like, no way, no way. Jesus couldn't have healed you. Jesus is a sinful man. He teaches blasphemy. He couldn't have done that. I want you to notice the formerly blind guy's response to them. It's awesome. John chapter 9, verse 25, he says this. Whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. I'll let you religious leaders, philosophers decide. One thing I do know, once I was blind, but now I see. Now I see. In other words, faith is the unexplainable. 
Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. The unexplainable meeting the undeniable. All that I know, I couldn't see. Now I do. I didn't know what you guys looked like. You're hideous looking. I didn't know what you looked like. But now I can see you. I can't explain it. But it's undeniable. My experience is real. It's legit. It's happened to me. I can see. Listen, we all go through times of struggling with our faith. Every single one of us. And sometimes it's because it's just, sometimes it's hard to believe and wrap our heads around all that faith in God is. And there might be times where you've had doubts, and maybe for some of us here, serious doubts. But here's the question. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our wonders, are we willing to consider the evidence? In other words, are we willing to doubt our doubts? And let me try to explain this to you. People will make a case as, why, as to why they think maybe, you know, maybe Jesus, maybe God isn't real or true. Some will say, well, Jesus' system of morality, God's system of morality, it's just offensive. Uh, others might say, you know what, I, I just kind of look at the world and I see the problem of evil in the world and that doesn't make sense to me that there's a God and I can't imagine what God's up to. Another question that, that, that Jeremiah and many of the Old Testament prophets asked, they said, Man, if there's a God, why are the wicked so prosperous? Why do dishonest people succeed? We've asked those questions. God, I have my doubts. But when you and I encounter the evidence for Jesus that challenges those assumptions, here's what you have to decide. You have to make a decision. Am I going to let the evidence overrule my objections and doubts? Or... Am I going to invalidate the evidence because of my objections and doubts? Am I going to let the evidence overrule my objections and doubts, or am I going to invalidate that evidence because, you know what, I got a lot of objections to this, and I have my doubts. I, I want you to think about it this way, and I've chosen this illustration for President and Sergeant Nate Lang, who can't be here with us now, and he's listening on podcasts, watching it, hey, Nate. Yale physicist Robert Adair, physicist at Yale, he studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. And, and, and so he published a book in 2002 called The Physics of Baseball. There's a lot in it, but here's one of the things he found out. That a 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove in about, not in about, in 400 milliseconds, which is a little less than half a second. He figured out and discovered that the batter's brain, and we're going to do a little math equation here, the batter's brain takes 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air, to get the image in his brain, and make a decision of whether or not he's going to swing. Okay, so you're tracking with me? Half the time the ball is in the air, the batter is simply trying to decide what to do. Now, if the batter does decide to swing in his brain, the brain spends another 100 millisecond deciding where to sprint, swing the bat. High, low, down the middle, inside, outside. So you tracking with me? How many milliseconds is that? 300, right? 300. Now, the batter hasn't even swung yet. Then it takes the batter 
uh, to swing, for the batter to swing, it will take 150 milliseconds. Anybody here good with math? 300 plus 100 plus 450, that equals 450 milliseconds. The problem is, scientifically, by physics, he has proven that it only takes 400 milliseconds to get to the catcher's glove. So, what does Adair conclude? Simple, that according to the laws of physics, that a 90 mile an hour fastball is impossible to hit. Now, how many of you agree with the conclusion that it's impossible to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball? I'm not talking for you. I'm not, I mean, I know it's impossible for all of you. But according to the physics, how many of you agree that it's impossible to hit? Now, why is it that you don't agree with that? Are you like, well, you know what? Hey, I'm a physicist. I can prove, I can prove by science and I can prove the calculations and here's why it's impossible. Is that your reasoning? No, of course not. You don't agree because you say, listen, I'm not real sure about all the physics and the science and all that jazz, as my grandpa used to say. I, I don't understand all that, but I have seen a dude hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. In fact, I've seen a guy hit a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. I can't explain the facts. I can't explain the laws of physics, but I can't deny what I've seen. Are you tracking with me? Which means you know intuitively that you're smart enough to go with the undeniable over the explainable. You're smart enough to understand that the undeniable takes precedence over the explainable. John says, this isn't some theory. This isn't some written on paper that, that you know, we can explain it all. We believe because Jesus rose from the dead, it's undeniable. We saw him, we touched him, we felt his wounds after the resurrection. In other words, here it is, the evidence overrules my objections. The evidence overrules my doubts. And so I can't invalidate the evidence just because I doubt, or just because I have concerns, or just because I don't fully understand. Now, by the way, before we move on, John's statement here also confronts one of the most commonly held assumptions today about our culture in regards to Christianity and truth. For those of you who've maybe studied up on this, you might know that when it comes to truth, there's, there's kind of two ways to describe truth. And, and, and one way is what's referred to as subjective truth. Another way is objective truth. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've studied it. You know, subjective truth is, okay, you know, the fan's on right now and I feel cold. Whether or not I'm actually cold or not, it's subjective. I feel cold. Some of you feel cold, some of you don't, you know, subjective. Objective truth, Sacramento is, you know, the capital of California. Have you discovered that people treat Christianity as if it's subjective truth? Have you figured that out as you've talked to people who don't know Jesus? They'll say things to you like this as you try to share your faith. They'll say, I'm glad it's working for you. That's great, that's great, that's your preference. I understand, I know that that's your truth. Right, you've heard that before. That's your truth, it's not my truth. But John said there is nothing subjective 
about the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing. It's not subjective. It's objective truth. We actually touched him. So in those times when you wonder, in those times when you doubt, based on the undeniable, which is the resurrected Jesus, it actually happened. Are you willing to just doubt your doubts? Are you willing to reconsider based on the evidence? To which you might say to me, hey, Chris, this is easy for you to say. I mean, this is easy for John. He was there. He actually got a touch. He actually got a see. I mean, that's wonderful for him. It's not my experiences. So what good does that do for me? His experience is good for him. It doesn't help me. What do I do with this? That's an important question because that's what we're talking about today. And I want us to see, and John answers that. First John chapter 1, verse 3. And he says this. He says, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have, and here's the key word for us today, so that you, and he's talking to us, so that you may have what? You may have, so say it again, you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, fellowship is a Greek word that means to experience. And contextually here, it means to experience Christ. I want you to think about this. When you give your life to Christ, you, you enter into a relationship with Christ. You are joining God's family, okay? Kind of like, okay, now I, I, now I have this relationship. I'm a part of God's family. But fellowship is the ongoing connection. It's the ongoing experiencing of Christ in our lives. And John says to us in this passage, he wants every single one of us to have that same experiential type moments with God that he had. That John says every single one of us can have that same experience, that same fellowship that he had, even though we didn't get a physically touched Jesus. We didn't get to physically see Jesus. We didn't get to be physically there and a part of his experiences. But we can, we can experience those same miracles that John experienced every bit as much as he did. We can have the same fellowship and some of us say, I don't understand it. How's that possible? Well, let me, let me, let me share some scripture with you and, and get you to, I'm going to do a bunch because I want you to kind of track along with me. I'd encourage you to reread the gospels, you know, maybe over the next month or so and read through the miracles of Jesus in light of what we're talking about right now. So let me give you some examples as we think about the experiences that he had, that they had. John says, I want you to have that same experience, that same ex fellowship with God. So let me give you some examples. John chapter 6. In, this, in that passage, Jesus multiplied the fish and the bread, fed about 5,000 people. And in that passage, we're like, hey, I wasn't there. I didn't get to see. I didn't get to be a part of that. But Jesus explained in that passage that him doing that miracle was a sign of God's power to satisfy. That God is actually, Jesus is actually the bread of life. And that those who would come to him, they will experience soul satisfaction in him. So my question for you is simply this. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that satisfaction that only comes in a relationship with God? John says, if you've experienced that, that's your proof. That's your miracle that your experiences with God are real. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells this woman everything about her, everything she's ever done, all the dirty, all the dark secrets. And in that passage, Jesus loved her anyway. 
So I ask you, have you ever had the sense that God's just loving on you? That he's pressing into your soul and you know that he loves you even though he knows everything about you. No one else knows some of your dark, dirty secrets, but Jesus knows it all. And yet you've had those moments where you just know God loves you. There's your miracle. There's your proof that your evidence is real. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is with his disciples on the raging sea, and they're terrified, and they think they're going to die, and they wake Jesus up, and they're like, hey, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus stands up, and peace be still, still and calms the raging sea. Have you ever gone through that? A terrible storm in your life that God either calmed the sea, or better yet, he gave you that peace in the storm. Letting you know he's, he's got it. He's got it all under control. John says, that's your miracle. That's your proof that he's real. And I know many of you because I've talked to you. I've shared, you've shared with me your stories that you've been through incredible tragedy. And you have friends or people you work with or people, acquaintances, people you connect with, and they'll ask you, man, you're going through so much. How are you doing that? Your demeanor is not what I would expect of somebody who's going through that. It, you're, you're, you're like, there's this calm with you. There's this, yeah, you're hurting, but, but there's this peace in you. And what do you say? It's not me. It's what God's doing in me. It's the peace that God gives me. Some of you, that's been your experience. That's your miracle. That's the proof that your experiences with God are real. Give you a couple more. Matthew chapter 9, a woman was, uh, comes up to Jesus and she had had a menstrual flow of blood for 12 years, which in that culture meant she was unclean. And as a result of that, no one would touch her, right? Everybody had their hands in their pocket when it came to her. So as a result, she felt unlovable. And in that passage, Jesus heals her and calls her this tender term, daughter. And she and her soul feels the love and the acceptance that God has for her. Have you had that in your life? Where God has called out to you and said, you are my son, you are my daughter. We sang this morning, I'm a child of God. Have you experienced that and known God saying that to you and calling out to you? That's your miracle. That's your proof that your experiences are real. One more. Jesus in Mark 8 heals a guy uh, who is uh, blind, and he heals him in actually two stages. And so he goes to heal him, and, and, the guy, and Jesus is like, hey, how you doing? And the guy's like, well, you know, it's a little blurry. Uh, everybody looks like trees. And, and so then Jesus touches him again, and I've always wondered why. Was Jesus running low on healing juice that day? You know, or did he just not have enough? No, no. He was giving us a picture of how he clears up our sight, our spiritual vision. That when you and I first come to Christ, that, that he reveals to us just enough to know that we're lost, that we need him. And we don't even comprehend all the wonders and the mysteries of God and faith in God. We just know we are lost and he saved me. But what happens? As you spend time with God, the longer you walk with him, the more that you see what life in God is meant to be in contrast to the life that the world offers us. And some of you, you know what that sweet fellowship with God is like. The longer you've been in, in a journey with Jesus, the more incredible you know your life is. And you would never go back 
to that old life, that old way of living. God gave you eye, healed you over and over. What's the point? The point is fellowship with God. It's an experience. It's experiential. And as you experience the moments, as you experience these miracles in your life and in my life, we gain greater confidence of its truth. In other words, Christianity is very much a taste and see religion or faith. You see, I'm sure. I am. And I have assurance because I've experienced what John is talking about. I've experienced those moments. And my question is, have you as well? Because if you've experienced those, John says, that's how you can know. You can be assured. Now, just to clarify, because I think we'll think about this a little bit as we process this. We think, okay, we're all talking about experiences with God. And you need to know for clarity that the proof of Christianity does not rest entirely on your experience. Okay, so it's bigger than just your experience. Your experience, my experience, it doesn't prove Christianity. But you know what it does do? It validates it and teaches us and assures us of what even others before us have experienced. Now, I want to read one more verse uh, that talks about this in 1 John chapter 2. And it, we see that Christianity, our Christian faith, is an experienced religion and, it's, and, and faith, and it shows it in a different form in this verse. I think it's interesting. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, The Holy One has given you His Spirit. There's the Spirit of God in us. He's given you His Spirit. And all of you, what? Let's say this word out loud. All of you know the truth. There's that knowing. There's that experience again. What's he saying? He's saying to you and I, do you realize that the voice of God has always been speaking? The voice of God has always been calling out to us. But once the Holy Spirit is inside of you, it's like I finally have ears to hear and to know the truth. I've been seeking and I've wanted to know it. And now that I have God in me, I'm aware of God. I'm aware there's a God. I'm aware he's calling out to me. I'm hearing his voice. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this, my sheep, what? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Part of why I can say before you that I have certainty that I know God is because I hear his voice. Now, I'm not talking audibly, you know, some, you know, creeping you out type thing, but, but I have heard the voice of God in my life. Paul, it was talked about with Paul in Acts chapter uh, 22. Saul or Paul was on, his road, on the road to Damascus, and, and this blinding light came, and he heard the voice of Jesus calling out to him. What's interesting in that passage, where we learn in that story, is Paul or Saul had other people with him, and they didn't hear the voice. They didn't experience it the same way. So what's the deal with people like that? You see, Paul had that conversion moment. Paul had that time, and that's what happens to us. When you, God gives you ears to hear, you'll hear his voice, and you'll recognize, man, he had been speaking all along, even when others around don't know it or experience it. So what is the deal with those who don't know, who don't hear, who don't experience the call of God, the voice of God in their life. The Bible actually talks about it. Paul explains it. In Romans chapter 1, and he says this, he said, God created all of us with the ability to perceive God. All of us were created that way, but our ability to know God, to sense God, 
All of that got messed up because of our sin. So now you and I need the Spirit of God to give us back, you know, our eyes, our spiritual eyes. So what John is saying is that those of us who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, there's this first-hand Spirit-given knowledge that God gives to us and it comes alive in us and He speaks to us. Again, taking this path of experience another step further to make sure we're comprehending and tracking with me. In Jesus' day, or or after Jesus in that first century, there was a group within Christianity called Gnosticism. That word Gnosticism was based on the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And within the Christian circle, Paul had to deal with this a lot. It was a false belief where the people felt that they had this special knowledge of God. It might be similar or would be similar kind of to a new age movement today, basically saying something along the lines of, hey, the way you find God is by finding him within. First John says something to us in verse two. It says, this one who is life itself was revealed to us. You see, he's not talking about the false teaching of the Gnostics. He's not talking about this new age uh, uh, thinking and teaching that says, you know what, how you do, what you do to find God? You just look within and find your inner peace and find your inner harmony. Now, that's not how it works. It's God's spirit who does all of the revealing. In fact, the word reveal there, that was revealed to us, one translation, I like how it says, it was made manifest to us. This happens at our conversion as God's grace becomes incredibly real to us. And then it happens again and again and again as we have more and more experience with God, more and more fellowship with God. And I love how Paul described it. His, his interpretation, or he described this fellowship in a different way to the Ephesians. He said, hey guys, here's my prayer for you. And this is my prayer for all of us. He said this, that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That word grasp was a military word that means to seize, to overtake, that, 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 it would see, that you would overtake or seize a fortress and knock down its walls. You see what Paul was praying for us? Was that our knowledge, our experience of the love of God, which is revealed to us through his spirit. It's not just, hey, I look within. It's his spirit revealing it. Paul said to us, man, I want that love of God. I want it to grab you. I want it to overtake you. I want it to seize your life. Because when that begins to happen, when when that begins to penetrate your hearts, you'll know. You'll have that assurance of your experiences with God. So I ask you, has it happened? Have you had those times when you just know that the love of God is real? so real that you feel like you can reach out and touch it. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. I hope you're catching what John's saying to us. The fellowship with God is the point of our faith. That close connection with God to know and to be known by him. And knowing isn't just knowledge. It's not just memorizing doctrine and it's not just mastering spiritual disciplines. Knowing is experiential. Experiencing the beauty of God in a real and tangible way. I don't know about you. 
I'm tired of, of an idea of a, of a boring version of our faith. That's not what I want. I want to experience the glory of God. I want to experience the glory of God that causes the glories the world have to offer me, that that pales in comparison. Do you want to know, do you want to experience the glory of God? That's his question for us this morning. God offers that to you. That connection, that fellowship with him, it's what you and I were created for. So, our faith, your faith, you can know, you can be assured that your experiences with him are real. And as you grow in that experience with God more and more in your life, you will gain that assurance more and more in your life. Do you want that? Do you want to know those experiences? Do you want to know those miracles? You can. As you plug in more to God, as you connect more with him, as you actively seek him. That's what God's calling you to. That's what he's inviting you to. Then as Steve talked about, as we experience the glory of God, we can then go be the light for him in a dark world that desperately needs the glory of God in their lives, that they can experience a relationship with God as well, a fellowship with God as well, a connection with God as well. Do you want that? We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.